Hi everyone, we just want to let you know Literally Dead does contain explicit language and some of the topics we talk about can be disturbing and triggering. Listener discretion is advised. We're here. We're here. Episode one. We're here. Episode one. Um, and we are covering our theses this week. Thesi? Thesi, yeah. Um, yeah, let's thesis. go with thesi. Thesi? Okay. Sure. I, you know, I went through four fucking years of college and I still don't know this shit. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> we should probably introduce what we are. This is literally dead episode yep. one, where we provide some good ass info dumping. So that's... Mm-hmm. I'm ready to get into it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Sheila, will you do the honors in doing a magic roll to decide who goes first? All righty, so it is a three. So I decided I would be one through three and you would be four through six. So I will go first. first. And I guess we're going to kind of, we kind of forgot to introduce this episode, even though we did say we were covering our theses. Oh, yeah. So, um,. Amanda and I went to the same college um, and the same major, and we both had wild, well, not wildly different topics for our thesis. But wildly different topics for our But wildly different. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, This is basically going to be an introduction to what the podcast will be about going forward. Um, You'll have a little bit of a taste of how we research, how we talk about things. Um, My thesis was about dark tourism. Um, which I will get into a deeper description in a second. But the title of it was Regulating the Violent Past, Methods in Dark Tourism. And now if you go to look up my thesis on the RIT website, which is the school that we had gone to, Rochester Institute of Technology, um, it will be under my middle name. So it's Jean Petrowski rather than Sheila Jean Petrowski. So let's get started. I was so excited. (laughs) <laughs> I know it's been, I, I mean, I've been talking to you on about, on and off about this, Amanda, yes. um, over the last few days, and we've obviously talked about it quite a bit recently, because um, I believe it was last year, there was a new Netflix show called Dark Tourists that yes. we actually sat down, and we've watched most of the episodes. I think we have one episode left. Yeah, I think it's just the last episode we need to watch. That show has been an intro to a lot of people now, I think, to dark tourism, or what the, tor- what the term really is. Dark tourism itself, and it's, it's a term that was coined by um, two researchers back in 2000, uh, John Lennon, not that John, <laughs> um, and Malcolm Foley in their, like, their namesake book, Dark Tourism. And basically what it is, it's an umbrella term for a lot of different types of tourism, trauma tourism, um, genocide tourism, things like that. Um, any site that deals with trauma, with death, with tragedy um, is a dark tourism site. So if you go to the, like the cemetery just to walk around, you're participating in dark tourism. If you're going to the Holocaust Museum, the 9-11 Museum, a lot of memorials specifically are dark tourism. Right. 
And something that I like to touch on in my thesis, I believe I touched on this at least, was that in a lot of ways, dark tourism nowadays is like a modern pilgrimage. Yeah. Because a lot of people have a very, they have a, not everybody has a solid reason for going, but a lot of people do. Like a lot of people will go because they have a connection to the site. And so a lot of times people will take this trip to see a place and to basically just absorb the atmosphere, absorb what they can learn and kind of, they want to walk away with a feeling of either being healed a little bit by the experience, depending on how they went into it, or walking out of it with something more than what they walked in with, like a better understanding. Um, of course, there's always people that go to these places because they're like, oh my God, death, oh, ghosts, <laughs> things like that. Like people are always super excited to go to like a lot of different places and ghost tourism is a huge thing now. I mean, it's always been a huge thing. God knows the Victorians love their seances and bullshit like that, but we still love it today. And something I actually didn't get all the way into because I kind of felt like I would, would start to sound really ridiculous, Dark tourism needs to be handled carefully. Yes. And a lot of people don't necessarily do that because you are dealing with the past. But more importantly, you are dealing with death in the past. You're dealing with people's suffering. And there is a very fine line that you can walk before you start getting into a very disrespectful territory. Yeah. Um, like, so in my thesis, I specifically looked at three different sites for dark tourism i wanted to cover like a spectrum of places that used like the death and the darkness in their past as like a gimmick to those who didn't mention it at all and i also wanted to cover like house museums prison tourism is really big um prison slash like hospital tourism oh, when yeah. it comes to dark tourism because people huge. love to go through like sanitariums and shit right. that have been closed down and god knows there's so many fucking haunted houses that are built in old sanitariums because they like the fucking creepy factor 10 out of 10 it's, creepy that's, factor. Malcolm yeah on. it's not not something i really recommend yeah i don't really approve of it at all but then again i'm not the leading expert on dark tourism or sanitariums so, I mean, everybody's a historian in their own right. Public history isn't saved for academia. And that's something that I really believe in. Because as soon as you start building your history into, like, an ivory tower is when you really get start getting, like, issues. I feel um, like that was Nystrom's whole point of his class. Yeah. So um, We took a public history class with a... Uh, <laughs> a lovely professor named Eric Nystrom. Uh, hi, Eric, um, if you're listening. <laughs> his class was the kind of like proponent for my thesis in general because there was a, one of the sites that I talk about in my thesis is Sloss Furnace. We had a reading that we did in his class that mentioned it. It mentioned Sloss Furnace, but it mentioned it as industrial tourism. And I like, I read the name and I'm like, oh my god, that's the haunted place, right? As a kid, I watched like fucking ha most haunted places on earth. Now, as an adult, I watch Ghost Adventures on and off. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. um, which, fun fact, I actually uh, watched all three episodes. So my th my thesis covers uh, the Lizzie Borden house, Alcatraz, and Sloss Furnace. Um, and I watched all three Ghost Adventures on it, and then I referenced them in my thesis, and I don't know why I did that. I feel but... like that's not even an issue because <laughs> Ghost Adventures, which everyone will find out very soon, is like my favorite show. 
<laughs> okay, yeah. So we, it mentions Lost Furnace in this public history reading. And I, yeah, I'm like, oh my God, that's a haunted place. But they went the entire few pages that they were talking about it without mentioning this. So I went and I looked it up because I'm like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not like just misremembering things, right? This place is like haunted. And I was looking online and it's the same place and their website doesn't mention like the deaths or the tragedies that happened there. The public historian on site that does a lot of the curation, she she absolutely hates it. And the reason that she hates it, and well, this is really what started me on everything was because like, wow, they, they're not putting this out there and I wanna know why. Like why do people, why do places not mention different spots in the past and so I, I like I got really interested in dark tourism from there because people go there for the industrial tourism they want to see the old iron port that Sloss Furnace is down in Birmingham Alabama um and it was found it was founded in 1881 by James Wizard Sloss and most of the workers that they had were uh cheap loaned prison labor so you know that's not a happy start to begin with Right. So at least at the time of my thesis, the curator slash historian of the furnace was Karen Oates. And so I got interviews with a person at each one of these places to talk about why they didn't put things out there. Or why did they and how did they talk about it? And she just hates it. A lot of what the interview was, was a lot of like she got, she really detested what the like history of her place of work became and the reason that it became this way is i mean the deaths and the tragedies that happened like there was a guy that fell into one of the pores and died and um some people died because of like gas inhalation and things like that it's an industrial site in like the 1800s and 1900s there's gonna be death like that's gonna be a thing they rent out the site for like weddings and different like corporate events and things like that. It's a museum. Like things are gonna happen. Like they're gonna rent it out for stuff like that. But from September to October, they rent it out to a performance group who turns it into a haunted house. It's Lost Fright Furnace. Oh, I feel like so, you told me about this when we yeah. were writing the thesis. Yeah, no, I di- I, I'm pretty sure I did because I was pretty astounded by it. Because, like, if you look up Sloss Furnace, their website is, like, basically the top one. And then Sloss Fright Furnace can be found on, like, the first page. And so, <laughs> and a lot of things like Ghost Adventures, they talk to the performers, not the actual historian oh on site for this. That sort of thing is getting away from what Sloss Furnace wants to portray. They want to put that education out into the into the public. Um, and preserve their history as well. Then you have another side of, with like the Lizzie Borden house. So Ooh, um, polar opposites there. Yeah, complete polar opposites. You can tell that these were on the opposite sides of the spectrum, um, on what I was going with. Um, and Alcatraz was in the middle because we'll we'll, we'll get to that in a second. But <laughs> Alcatraz um, is gonna have to wait its turn. <laughs> Alcatraz is gonna have to wait its turn. <laughs> um, but the Lizzie Borden house. And a Lizzie Borden house I have an issue with. Crash course for, like, anybody who doesn't know about Lizzie Borden. Lizzie Borden was a 30-something-year-old living with her stepmother and father and her sister. Um, and she murdered her father and her stepmother. Allegedly. Um, allegedly. Allegedly. There's a lot of, like, you can obviously tell where I'm biased at. <laughs> but <laughs> there's, a lot, there's a lot of evidence pointing towards her that she committed this crime. But you can go, and it's the Lizzie Borden 
I say Lizzie Borden house, but it's the Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast. You can go and sleep in the house and eat breakfast like in the dining room. And they've basically, they've done this really good job of if they haven't found the period piece, they have something very similar. Um, And it is very much like the look and the feel that you would have had that day of the murder without the bodies, of course, unless you're going on the anniversary of the murder, in which case they do reenact the uh, the entire scene. Like they sell tickets for it. It's a whole big shebang. Like they go through. It's gory. Yeah, it's it's a lot like that. Yeah, they take the murder. And I mean, that's the only reason you'd go to that place anyway, like. Unless it was, like, just a bed and breakfast, you, you might have a few people to show up. It's like everybody loves a bed and breakfast. But the reason that people go, the reason why it's so successful is because of the murders. And because people want to know, hey, is this haunted? The website had, like, ghost cams that you oh could, God. like, rent. Yeah. Um, and it was just incredible. I'm actually looking at the website now. They still very much, like, play up this whole, like, hey... You can come in here, you can do the entire overnight stay, and then if you want to leave, you can leave, but we don't give you a refund. <laughs> like, if you get too spooked, you shit out of luck. That's your but, own like, damn fault. Yeah, you can bring a Ouija board, you can do all this bullshit, and oh it's like... Oh my god. That's yeah. the thing you bring into a bed and breakfast as a Ouija board. <laughs> Holy shit. Especially not at the Lizzie Borden house. Holy shit, and let's have some like, boundaries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like... The Lizzie Borden house takes it to such an extreme of the owner at the time that I spoke to and had an interview with was with Leanne Howard. She just like she very much wanted to like put forward that this we're serious about the history. And I'm like, are you really not to not to give them too much static? But it was very much of this feeling of are you I know you're serious about the history. I know you want to preserve this. But the way that you put it out into the world is kind of like if we're looking at this from a purely ethical standpoint, it's kind of disrespectful. Yeah. Like, people died. People died. This was a serious thing um, that happened, and people are coming in, and, like, this this is just a wild thing for me, I guess, a wild opinion that I have. But going into a place and constantly poking whatever, like, spirits might be there with, like, a Ouija board night after night after night, like, have some respect man right how would you Even, feel if people poke and prodded you all day every day yeah I like you're trying answers. to sleep <laughs> you're, you're trying to sleep and somebody's fucking sticking you with a like a, a stick like hey hey what's your name like no let These sleep people died okay they said they would sleep when they die and they're not even letting them have that yeah <laughs> let the dead um, sleep jesus christ and the soapbox <laughs> so that's just kind of like going from sloss furnish which is just a very like it's an educational tourism site it's like it's it's a uh a landmark and then you go to lizzie borden house which is their entire gimmick is dark tourism yeah you come you come for the murders you come to see if you can stay through the whole entire night you come to see if it's haunted like like leanne when I was talking to her, I asked her about some things. And as she was, like, talking, she's like, yeah, no, we give an hour tour. Um, we, we say this, this, and this. And really, we let people think what they want to think. And we try to correct what we have to correct. But you get you always get those people in there that are like, okay, but what about the ghosts? 
And it's like, that's just that's the, just the reality that you kind of have to deal with when you do it, when you have a site of dark tourism specifically. Yeah. Um, but especially for the Lizzie Borden house who play it up. Like they are specifically using it to their advantage. And while I guess it's a good marketing tool. Oh, for sure. Um, there are certain ethics that kind of come along with that, which I don't necessarily think that they're doing the right thing with. It's like, th there's a part of me that's like, oh my God, it's so cool that they're doing this. But another part of me is just like, you can't, you, you, you gotta be a little bit more respectful. Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna move on. I got Alcatraz to talk about. We're moving so on Alcatraz. Alcatraz. <laughs> All right, so Alcatraz was my middle, like my middle ground. Um, I spoke to a former park ranger who was working then into the, uh, not the archives, but more of the paperwork department and doing a lot of things there. His name was Craig Glassner. Um, I think his interview ended up being like 45 minutes to an hour nice. over the phone. I was sick that day and I like I because I was home from school I called all three places to give me an answer and all three places decided to call me back when I was sick in bed so <laughs> and he was the final one so I uh, had to listen to 45 minutes of very interesting stuff it was very interesting but I felt so bad because I was half out of it and I was kind of going like uh-huh yeah uh-huh and then giving him my next question. <laughs> but he was he was so good. He was so good. He knew so much. And he very much had that whole thing of like, you know, like Leanne Howard, oh, like she owned the house. Um, I'm pretty sure she did do tours and things like that. But she probably wasn't the main tour guide. Um, yeah. And while Karen Oots is like the, the historian and most likely gives tours as well, um, Craig really like, he was a he was a park ranger he did a lot of different things so it was really really cool to get his perspective um and see because he also had several different views to this as well but okay. so alcatraz as many know is you know a little island off of um california so it was closed in 1963 by robert f kennedy whereas in 1969 six years later it was occupied by the indians of all tribes so and this occurred for like 19 months basically um several different groups stayed on the island to protest the treatment of native americans i don't i'm not exactly sure how much got done because of it craig really wanted to reinforce that no matter like how many people come because it's a prison People right. died in the prison. People like there, there's like murderers. There's a lot of really bad people in the prison, um, and so it already has this feeling of like, a pr like a prison is a very special place for that kind of air. Like when I was talking about like Savannah, Georgia, like there's a different air to a prison. Like these people are bringing all of the energy that they had from their crimes and this and the other thing, and they may not just they just may not have very good energies to begin with um and so people are going because they want to hear about the dark shit that happened right they're not they're also not necessarily going for the ghost factor here i mean um, why else would you go visit a prison other than other than to hear the dark shit yeah ex exactly like and it's Hashtag it's an unfortunate <laughs> yeah it's an unfortunate thing um, and Craig really wanted to kind of bring out the fact that, hey, there's really good gardens. Like, the, the architecture and the island itself is just really, like, it's it's an important place, just in general. Um, and their gardens are very beautiful now. And, like, you can go and you can tour and you can see it. And 
kind of go through that history and kind of end on a peaceful note. But specifically with tor- like with prisons, you're going to learn about like you're going to go learn about Al Capone. You're going to go learn about like this person or that person or um, the people that escaped because yeah. Alcatraz has that whole like famous um, escape team that they had where people don't even know where they went now, um, and that's a whole whole another story. Again, there's so many like tangents we could make in this session, but. Um, but they're trying to redirect it from that. They're not going to shy away from it because it is a prison. But they want to talk about history rather than looking more into just, like, how dark it was. Like, how, like, I guess they don't, they don't focus on the evil that occurred necessarily or th- the evil that people did. It's a prison. We're going to talk about several of the inmates, but we're going to talk about what life was like there. Like, what was it like to be a guard on the island? What was it like to actually be an inmate? Yeah. What was it like to be, like, a staff? Like, what was it like to be one of the, the people that were on during the occupation? That's so interesting. Um, and one of the special things about... Alcatraz is because it was in the 1900s there's a lot of people that are still alive and so they oh, yeah, are doing this point. Re- point yeah yeah so it's also like another layer of like there were people here hon <laughs> <laughs> um there's people still alive who were here and they're actually doing and this is one of the things that I really love Alcatraz for but they are doing oral histories and they're recording them oh um, that's from- so cool yeah so they've got like former inmates former guard staff things like that and they're trying to get as much down before people really start passing away which is just it's it's incredible and that was one of the things i i talked about it in my thesis but because it wasn't like the main topic of my thesis i didn't really get too much into it but i I really appreciate that alcatraz is doing that i appreciate any like site that does that when they realize like hey we are still skimming the top of this history and we can preserve as much of it as possible um and put it to good use yeah so you know so that's kind of a lowdown on dark tourism a run through of three different sites and so going forward into the future what i'm going to try and focus on each session is a specific dark tourism site in regards to the theme that we will be talking about that week um, so I don't have to give like a brief overview of each of them like I did here. I can go into full depth. Why does it like correspond with the theme? What's it about? Why is it dark? And how do people react to it? Oh, I'm so and excited to go further. Yours actually is so <laughs> cool. I I, yours is too. So thanks. <laughs> All right. So yeah, no, I'm I'm done. I need to stop talking. I have some <laughs> coffee here. I'm gonna sit back. I'm gonna kick it. And I want you to tell me about your book. Oh, geez. Okay, so... I don't think listeners are ready for this, Sheila. <laughs> I don't think they are. So You gotta bring out the title first, Amanda. Whew, first, let's get into how I found my topic, because I feel like that's just an interesting story. Mm-hmm. Over the summer of probably 2015, mm-hmm. I was working at the archives full-time over the summer, and I was in charge of cataloging or doing inventory on our poster collection, mm-hmm. and this poster comes across my lap, and it reads, it's a lecture poster for the previous curator of the Carey Collection, which is our rare book library at our university, and it was says, and it said, like, RIT's most obscure book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, well, you got me there. So um, I went down and I talked to Stephen, who is now the curator of the Carrie. Hi, Stephen, if you're listening. Um, 
We have a lot of favorites, and you're going to learn this. We, we love our major. A lot of favorites. Kind of gross. He lets me see it, and turns out I actually saw this book before when I took his class in like spring 2014. And I was like, whoa, that's crazy. So <clears throat> I'm like, I have to do this for my thesis. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. This is my thesis topic. And of course, it has the worst title ever. It took me like two months to learn how to say it. So the book that we're going to be talking about today is called The Hypner Tamakia Polyphili. Okay, okay. So the Hypner Polyphili. Otamakia. Otamakia. Polyphili. Polyphili. I'm not going to repeat that. You can repeat that. I'm going to repeat it a lot. <laughs> I'm also, maybe might abbreviate it as HP. Do not that, get that confused with Harry Potter. These are two mm-hmm. very different books. <laughs> <laughs> All right. A little bit of background. Do I want to get into background? No. We'll talk about my project. So my original idea for my project was to look at reader response in the Hypnotomachia because the... What's very unique about the one at RIT is that there are a lot of colorings in the book. Actually, to be specific, out of like 120 illustrations in the book, 84 of them were colored in the copy at RIT. So I'm like, okay, I want to see if this is a running theme in other books. So I traveled to New York City, where I saw a first edition copy at the New York Public Library, and I also saw a first edition copy at Columbia University. And then I traveled to Chicago, where I saw another first edition at the Newberry Library, and I saw a first French edition also at the Newberry. And then I came Mm -hmm. home and looked primarily at the one we had at our university, which is actually what I stuck with. I didn't even talk about the other five copies I'd seen. Because <laughs> so, my advisors were like, that's a doctoral thesis. And we ain't got no time for that. I'm like, <laughs> fair. So I just stuck with our copy at our university. So again, that book title is The Hypnotes Machia Polyphili. Um, mm-hmm. That is the pronunciation that I settled on, since there isn't a 100% correct way to say it. But that's kind of what I see is most creative. The book was actually printed in Venice, Italy in 1499 by a printer named Aldous Minutius, and he's a pretty well-known Renaissance printer. Mm-hmm. So a little bit about Aldous. People don't call him Minutius, they call him Aldous, so that's mm-hmm. what I'm going to continue doing too. So like I said, he's one of the best-known printers of the Renaissance. He was actually born as Aldo Minuzo in 1449 or 1450. And um, oh, I'm going to butcher this. <laughs> Bastiano, Italy? That's what we're going to go with. Um, which is around 30 miles outside of Rome. So during this period, this is the humanist period of the Renaissance. So it's very all about um, Latin and Roman and Greek influences. So he actually Latinized his name, which is how we got Aldous Minutius. We're going to skip way the hell like 50 years in the future, um, in 1495, he publishes his first book, which are the first five volumes of the work of Aristotle. And this is a quote from one of my sources in my thesis. It was considered the greatest printing achievement of the 15th century. Um, It's basically the first time all of the works of Aristotle 
were printed together. And all his books were printed in a typeface called Greek. And there's actually six versions of Greek typeface, all of which he created. One of my favorite things that Aldous Minutius came up with is, of course, italics. So that was a typeface created specifically by Aldous for the purpose of bridging written manuscripts and printed word. So this period that we're talking about is called the Incunabula period, which literally means in the cradle in Latin. And that covers the first 50 years of European printing. So I make that distinction because in China, they already had printing. (laughs) There's already movable type. But in Europe, it takes a while because of the Dark Ages, but you know, Gutenberg finally gets there. So <laughs> first 50 years of European printing is this incunabula period. So um, italics was a way to imitate the written hand. It was also smaller and more compact, so it didn't take up as much space on the paper, mm-hmm. making the printing cost less because he wasn't using as much material. Also helped with the transition from written to printed word. He also designed ornate capitals and borders, which were characteristics usually found in illuminated manuscripts. You can always like picture that big fairy tale book with yeah. the really printed ornate capital. Mm-hmm. Those were what you found in almost all illuminated manuscripts. So he copied that and put it in the printed book. Look at this guy, overachiever. I know, he's just like, Look at me. I'm hot shit. So that's what he did. In 1496, he founded the Aldine Press in Venice. Mm -hmm. Um, You can actually find so much information on Venetian printing during the Incunabula period because Venice was the number one printer not only in Italy, but all of Europe. Um, And during this time also, books were politically and religiously censored. On to the history of the Hypner Tamakia Polyphia. It is actually considered, quote, the most glorious book of the Renaissance, the most beautiful of all books containing woodcut illustrations. Yeah. This book is cool. A-F. <laughs> so the genre that we're talking about is actually called dream vision, dream allegory, or dream poetry. I usually go with the phrase dream poetry. What that means is that the beginning of the book the author, the protagonist, or the narrator falls asleep. Then the rest of the book is the dream. Mm -hmm. And then the very end is the author waking up and realizing that it is a dream. So you're kind of like, wow, that was a waste of 300 pages (laughs) because none of it happened. (laughs) What the fuck? So I share those sentiments with this book. I also should say that I did not actually read it. I have heard in my research that many a scholar has tried to read this book into completion, but it's just so goddamn boring (laughs) that you can't. And we'll get into how I can actually prove that in my uh, thesis. The author of the book is actually a somewhat mystery. Scholars believe that the author is a man called Francesco Colonna who was a Venetian monk. There is no direct proof, but there is some circumstantial evidence. So if you put together all of the decorated capitals in the book, it actually spells the phrase that in English translates to Brother Francesco Colonna has dearly loved Polia. Really? Yeah. So it's like the first letter of each chapter, if you put it all together in Latin, and then you translate it to English, 
That's what I mean. Fun. That's that's one. Yeah. So, so circumstantial that's, evidence. <laughs> I mean, as a super extra. So I don't right. know why anybody, unless like they. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Keep going. Yeah. So the wordplay does not end there. The title itself has layers of meaning. So the first word of the title, Hypnotomachia, is comprised of three words. Mm-hmm. Hypnos, which is sleep. Eros, which is love. And Mache, which is strife. So putting it all together gives us the strife of love in a dream. Now the nice. second word, polyphily, translates to, quote, the lover of polia, giving us the full title, Polia's Lover's Strife of Love in a Dream. But of course, it does not end there, the wordplay. <laughs> of course not, because this is extra. The name polia is actually a Greek term for old age and antiquity, making her an allegorical figure for Polyphilos and Colonna's love for classical antiquity. Oh my god. So it's basically... And you can see this throughout the book, too, because literally the whole dream is him walking around in these ancient Greek and Roman ruins. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure there's a part where he gets hard from it. I'm just saying. <laughs> My God. Like, yeah, that's that's what we're at. That's where we're at with this book. <laughs> this is a weird-ass book. That title of that poster did not disappoint when I got through this. So the book itself is written in Latin, Greek, and an Italian vernacular, all wrapped up in a Latin syntax. I can't imagine what translating this was like. Nightmare. like, the title itself just makes me want to pull my hair out. (laughs) For for real. So the book itself is separated into two sections, or two books. Uh, The first is in Polyphilo's point of view, and it's the Mm -hmm. longest section. It's probably three quarters of the book. And the second section is in Polia's point of view, and it's much, much shorter. So I was wrong in the beginning of the episode. There's actually 172 woodcut illustrations. Mm-hmm. 11 of them are full pages. Mm-hmm. 39 of them are decorative capitals. And the rest of them are like quarter of a page or smaller. Mm-hmm. Fun fact, this book also contains... The most censored image of the Renaissance. I will probably upload my pictures onto our Facebook page. Okay. Because I got a few examples. Okay. But you can tell where in the printing process that that the first edition you're looking at was made. Mm-hmm. Because like half the batch is censored and half of the batch is uncensored. It's basically where the publishing police, if you will figured out oh shit there's a penis <laughs> so, it's one of the most censored work in the renaissance period mm-hmm. um you can actually tell how popular the book was mm-hmm. because if it was popular they would have printed multiple editions so in 1499 when this was published not popular probably and <laughs> probably in the slightest uh, because uh-huh. there's never another edition published but in 1545 all this minutiae is this is why we don't say minutious. Aldous's descendants actually took pieces from his press. Mm-hmm. And when they moved to France, they had the majority of the woodcut still for the Hypnotomachia. And so they republished in 14, 1545 in France. And they created um, different woodcut illustrations, too, for the ones that they didn't have. Mm-hmm. And that was 
proved to be quite popular in France. Um, it was republished <laughs> in 1546 and then followed by three additional editions. Oh. So French liked it. That's all that matters, apparently. <laughs> um, so I just want to explain what the uh, image is that's very censored. It's, <laughs> I don't even remember what it's called anymore. I think it's the Festival of Something. But it's basically this big archway mm-hmm. with some leaves and then a statue. And then people at the base of the statue kind of worshiping and like slitting goats' throats and blood <laughs> is coming into bowls. Anyway, in the, right in the middle of the page is a big fucking penis. <laughs> it's fine, but that's there. And then <laughs> I have a picture that I'm going to post to the Facebook page. That is um, the picture from the Carrie and then a censored version of it. And then I also have a censored version of another illustration from the book, which is a swan fucking a woman in the middle of a parade. Wow. On a float. Uh, all right. Yes. So um, as you can see, this is a great novel. Pick it up at your local Borders. Borders doesn't exist anymore. I live in 2004. (laughs) I didn't want to just look at the book as a historical piece of history. I also wanted to look at it as an object, which is, in my mind, super fun to look at books as objects rather than as a vehicle for delivering information. Um, Like I said, 84 of the 175 woodcuts are colored. Just a little background. Reader response and marginalia are two different things. So not all reader response is marginalia, but all marginalia is reader response. I I use them interchangeably. In this copy, the main form of marginalia is in the form of corrections from the errata page. And what an errata page is, is literally a page the last page they print and it's a page of corrections so every mistake that they've made they list (laughs) there because it's too expensive just to reprint they're printing copies of this book so they have to print this errata page to say hey we fucked up and here's where we fucked up how long was it by the like the last edition the ones that i've seen the errata page were only a page Okay. So it wasn't it wasn't horrible. So what we saw in this copy is that someone actually went through and found each of those mistakes and then fixed it. And there was always a little symbol in the margins. It kind of looked like a percent sign. And then you knew, oh, that's where a correction was made. And then if you flip back to the errata page, it's actually X'd out. So someone's like, oh, I don't need this anymore because I fixed it myself. Oh. Super interesting. And then there were manicules. Manicules, yeah. Uh, and manicules are drawings of pointed hands. So people just didn't draw arrows. No, that's not good enough for the Renaissance reader, okay? They drew hands, or what they thought looked like hands. And um, <laughs> that pointed to a specific section or a passage that they thought was interesting, as well as underlining. That kind of reader response is very heavy in the beginning but it tapers off at the end. Now, I was able to identify five different hands. Hands also kind of made readers. There are five different people that marked the book. The first hand wrote a call number on the flyleaf, which is when you open the book, there's usually two or three pages that are blank. Those are called flyleaves. So someone wrote a call number for a library on one of those flyleaves. The second hand added page numbers to the upper right corners. Um, the third hand underlined, drew the manicules, and made the errata corrections. The fourth hand wrote in red ink and decorated indents and embellished page headers. 
So those were things that would have been done in illuminated manuscripts as well. The fifth hand is not actually found anywhere else in the book, except for the very last flyleaf page. And it states, quote, this book is complete according to De Bure. Mm. Now, I went down a rabbit hole back in 2016. <laughs> like, what the fuck does that mean? I found out that De Bure was actually a Frenchman that basically published a guide on what manuscripts should look like mm -hmm. for book traders so that they knew, oh, this is what a complete manuscript will look like, so it's going to be worth more than an incomplete manuscript. Because back in these days, you know, paper was expensive. Yeah. So they would, you know, take manuscripts apart to reuse the material. That's another topic for another day. But <laughs> De Bure made this guide and that was published in 1763. So we can assume that that writing was done in the late 1700s. Some interesting findings I came up with. I analyzed all 84 colored illustrations. <laughs> My spreadsheet is like 50 pages long. Yeah, no, I've seen parts of it. And it took me 10 million years to complete. So I found that the main character, Polyphilo, was actually mm -hmm. colored in a very uniform way throughout the book. Yeah. His robes were blue, his hair was yellow, his hat was brown. Not all three colors were always present. Sometimes just his hair was colored, sometimes just his hat. But regardless, one of those things was always the same color. Only four pigments throughout the whole book were used, and those mm -hmm. were green, yellow, blue, and brown. Limited um, palette. Limited palette. I can get behind it. Yeah. I actually was able to deduce that the illustrations weren't colored randomly. They weren't mm -hmm. colored as in like, ooh, I like this, so I'm going to color it. Or use as a coloring book where you pick and choose. Mm -hmm. It was a very linear. I was able to do that because after illustration 22, no more blue pigment is found throughout the book. Mm -hmm. So that means they ran out or it was too expensive to continue using. Had it been a random thing, blue would have been throughout the entire book, not just the beginning. Yeah. I also found that... Many of the illustrations depicted nature or took place outside, and they were always colored green. That's regardless if they were described in the text as being part of a statue or, or of a frieze. So if there was a statue that had um, like leaves on it, it doesn't matter that it was a statue, they painted it green. <laughs> I found that the reader always colored hair yellow. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I deduced was that the brown pigment may have actually been red. Um, and I say that because um, the brown was only used on his hat, but it was mm -hmm. also only used uh, when coloring flame or blood. That's that's fair. I feel like a br like a red wood brown over time. So yeah. So that's what I thought too. And being a primary color, you know, he had three primary colors, all three primary colors colors look at me and my art knowledge <laughs> <laughs> there was the red yellow and blue and then he made green because or she he or she just say they they <laughs> they used green made green i don't know what i was saying anyway so the very last part of my project was probably my favorite pieces of research, and that was nailing down the provenance. Oh. So. Can you can you explain to us what provenance is? I'd I know. be happy to. Thank so you. provenance is probably my favorite thing in the world. <laughs> in the museum world, in the research world, in the history world. Provenance is when you try to find or piece together the history of an object from its creation to the present day. So I had to piece together from 1499 to 2016. Oh my God. 
I did not get that far. <laughs> you tried, and that's I what did. matters. I did try. And you typically work backwards. So from 2016 is where we were at. The Carey Collection in itself came to the university in 1969. Um, before that, the collector, Mr. Carey, who is the namesake of the collection, he purchased the book in 1932 from a mm-hmm. sale called the Lothian Sale. And this catalog from this 1932 sale, I own it. It is on the bookshelf, Sheila, if you want to look at it. <laughs> um, it is my first quote-unquote rare book that I own. It is super cool. But the one trouble I had with this fucking catalog was that it has two Hypnartomachia polyphiles right next to each other. Oh, no. So I spent probably a good six hours writing about the wrong entry. Oh, no, honey. Because it said that it was clean and unmarked. And I was like, that means Carrie fucking colored in his own book. And I went on a field day with it. <laughs> I remember this. I remember you saying yeah. this while we were writing. Because we had oh like 20 God. pages due the next day. And like 10 of my pages <laughs> were about this finding. And then oh I emailed no. Julie. Julie, who I love. Hi, Julie. Um, and she's like, no, I'm not giving you an extension. I know you can do it. So, um, yeah, you know, 20 pages. It happens. I wasn't happy about it because I spent an all-nighter doing it. But, you know, it's fine. <laughs> it's yeah. fine. Um, so before 1932, um, there's actually a book plate on um, the back of the front cover. So book plates usually were used with wealthier families. And it would be typically their family crest. And it would be like, this is who it belongs to. Actually, resources that have compiled book plates so they can tell you what family actually owned the book. So I found that the book plate was from uh, a family called the Kerr family. Mm -hmm. And this rendition of the crest dated back to the third Earl of Lothian, William Kerr, who lived from 1605 to 1675 in Scotland. Um, I reached out to where his collection is now which is the New Battle Abbey Library in Scotland. And they told me that, A, I would have to come to Scotland to look at their resources to actually get a full provenance because there was so much that they had to go through. And I'm like, yeah, my thesis is due in literally two weeks. That ain't going to happen. <laughs> so thanks for the offer, though. Um, but they did send me a little snapshot stating that um, the Earl's collection in 1666 had been added to by over a thousand books all of which were from the renaissance i'm assuming i'm speculating that the book came into the earl's possession in 1666 um so there's still 167 years of ownership that i have no idea oh no no idea where it is or what it is you got pretty far though I did. So someday I hope to go to Scotland and uh, maybe figure that out. (laughs) I'd also like to figure out who the hell colored this book. Because I feel like the Earl, I don't know, I feel like he's a book collector. He would know better than that. So I feel like it came to his collection already colored. I don't know, though. Um, Another next step I'd love to do is um, pigment testing. I'd love to see what those pigments are made out of. I'd love to see how old they are. But that book is fucking awesome. 
<laughs> and I fucking love it. It's one of those cases of the like the way the book is done and the way that it's just done in general is so much more like interesting than what the actual content is. Oh, I said I had evidence as to why the middle is so boring. So I found that there is a section of book. It has to be at least 200 pages that there was no coloring, no coloring whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And then once the story kind of picked back up, there was coloring again. So it's literally <laughs> like the reader just checked the fuck out and was like, yeah, no. <laughs> and I mean, I, I read bits and pieces, but like the author would literally go 20, 25, 30 pages just describing what Polyphilo saw around him. Um, <laughs> whew, yeah, that is the Hypnerdmachia <laughs> from $14.99 by Aldous Venetius. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, so now we've had a crash course in both of how we kind of go about things. Yes. Um, so we have already decided our topic for next week. Um, so we what we have now is we have like a list of topics or themes. 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 themes, themes. <laughs> so also... I don't know if we've mentioned this before, but basically how we're going to go about this podcast is after this episode, we don't know what each of us is going to talk about. Right. Yeah. We're going to go in completely blind on what the other person has. We're going off of a theme. It's going to be chosen randomly um, each week. Um, so we did a random number generator in our like list of top or themes. Um, and next week will be nature. So I don't know what Amanda's going to do. Amanda doesn't know what I'm going to do. But I Amanda know knows what, what she's going to do. Cause <laughs> she's well, she, that already. <laughs> well, Sheila doesn't know what they're going to do. So we're, no, I, we're, don't, I don't know what you're going to do. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to, we're going to play this. Um, and yeah, thanks for sticking around with us. Thanks yeah, for listening to the episode one. I'm so excited about this. I'm so excited too, and I'm so glad we finally got to do it again. Me too, and I am pumped for <laughs> next week. All right. Well, yeah. next week, next two weeks. Next Every two, two weeks. weeks. Next episode. Yeah. Yeah. Love y'all. Thanks for listening. Thanks episode for listening. One in the books. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you want more Literally Dead, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Literally Dead. You can find us on Tumblr under the same name. If you have any topics you would like us to discuss, or ideas for future episodes, or you just want to say hi, email us at literallydeadpodcast at gmail.com.